Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the editor of Global Capital. And I'm John Hay, the Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. Each week we bring you the most interesting stories from the capital markets, all of which can be read at globalcapital.com. And to start with, we're going to revisit the uh, Global Capital Survey on working habits after the, co- after the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, that was the subject of last week's podcast. And this week, John, you've written uh, a very interesting article about the effect the pandemic has had on diversity. Um, what, what did you find? Well, it's interesting because the pandemic obviously is not directly uh, related to the issue of diversity and inclusion, which the the key element of which is um, for banks and financial services companies trying to make their staff more diverse on a, you know, by gender and ethnically uh, and to support uh, women and members of ethnic minorities in their workforces and enable them to progress better in their careers. The, the industry, of course, like many others, is still is still behind and, and you know, doesn't have uh, w- women and and ethnic minorities equally represented in, at all levels in, in the workforce. So so why did you look at this in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic in particular? Well, the funny thing is that the pandemic has has really forced a lot of organisations to change their thinking, particularly around social issues and how you treat employees and you know this was brought very much to their attention but very quickly by the need to have people working from home of course that's an operational challenge first of all but immediately you start to realize that has equality issues related to it because not everybody has the same kind of accommodation they don't have the same access to technology and broadband and so on and and it is making organisations have to think about, you know, equality within the workforce. And what also happened was in society at large, the pandemic, of course, had very unequal effects. And, you know, minorities were, were worse affected in many countries, including the UK and the US, uh, with higher death rates. And um, it's also put a higher burden on women because... Well, for many reasons, but one of them being they usually bear most of the burden of childcare and childcare was was made much more difficult by the pandemic. And so what do you think the outcomes are likely to be? Will there be greater flexibility um, uh, at investment banks, say, for both parents to be able to share uh, childcare burdens? Well, I think that has to be the hope. Um, one of the people I spoke to, Helen Beedham, uh, an expert on this issue, said um, she thought she had seen signs of men uh, being able, more able to talk to their employers about their role as fathers and their parental responsibilities, which is very important. And she said that, um, you know, until men get equal benefits and childcare recognition, with women, women will not be able to advance in the workplace because they will still always, you know, have to bear that burden. And indeed, uh, 
for women to get equal pay because um, if you, even if you have those equal benefits, there's still an economic riddle to solve, isn't there? If one one parent earns a lot more money than the other. Absolutely, and you know it's very prominent in in banking that you know in 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 quite a lot of firms the recruitment is pretty equal at, at graduate level now. Um, so with sort of equal numbers of women and men coming into the workforce. But but the you know if you get to sort of twenty years into the career, it's drastically changed, and that's uh, you know a big part of that is is the childcare issue and the ability of women to return to the workforce um, in in a way that suits their lifestyle. And how has the pandemic affected ethnic diversity at the workplace? Well, as I mentioned, the, there's there's been you know a, a, a real growth in awareness of of the importance of the issue partly due to the pandemic but also due to the murders that happened in the US in 2020 um and you know including George Floyd and we, which led to a wave of protests around the world against racism and i think all organizations of a certain size including all the major banks really realized that they needed to respond they they issued supportive statements um but but it, it's perfectly obvious that more more than that is required. And I think a lot of firms have uh, taken a hard look at themselves and tried to work out whether they really are doing the best they can for their uh, ethnic minority employees. And I think I think we, we are seeing um, new programs launched to to strengthen that that side of their equality work. Great. Thank you, John. Um, well, we turn our attention this week to the emerging markets uh, appropriately enough for a podcast that's being recorded over Thanksgiving. Uh, We're talking Turkey. Uh, We're looking at the prospects and risks for Turkish bonds um, as a result of the country's monetary policy. And then we're looking at El Salvador, which is embracing Bitcoin as part of its government financing, or is at least attempting to. Uh, And we were joined for those discussions by Francesca Young, our Emerging Markets Editor, and Ollie West, our Latin America Correspondent. Hi, Francesca. Um, Can you bring us up to date with the latest situation in Turkey? Yeah, sure. Um, So at the end of last week, um, President Erdogan in Turkey, um, via essentially the central bank, um, cut interest rates by a further 100 basis points, um, which brings it to about about 400 basis points since September. and the problem is, is that the reason he's doing this is because he believes that by cutting interest rates, um, he will help to curb the massive inflation that is currently going on in his country, at running at about 20%. Um, the difficulty is, is that um, the rest, most of the rest of the world does not subscribe to his way of thinking. Um, and so this has caused quite a bit of turmoil um, in the Turkish financial markets over the last week. So what's the reaction been? Um, so just in the last week, um, there's been about a 15% drop um, in the lira against the dollar, um, taking it down to, I think it's lost about 40% in around the last, uh, well, since the start of the year. Um, so the currency reaction has been, I think, probably the biggest thing. Um, that, of course, you know, essentially feeds into everything else. Um, but actually, the the reaction in credit has been relatively muted. Um, the five-year CDS is only up about 50 basis points. 
Um, and similarly, um, yields on Turkish, uh, Turkish debt to, uh, black 50 basis points, um, which actually isn't that bad. I mean, the, the yields are still hovering sort of somewhere between three and four percent, which, I mean, given how big the currency drop has been, um, is actually almost a little bit surprising. Why, why is everyone uh, so so relaxed about it in the bond market? Um, at least apparently relaxed. Um, these these uh, Turkish borrowers generally have a lot of dollar debt. You would have thought uh, a plunging lira would make all that debt a lot more expensive to service. Yeah, well, I mean, there is that, and and you know, it's something that people do do very much have their eyes on because, particularly looking at emerging markets, you know, coming in the coming year. Um, there are US rate rises expected. So people were expecting yields to go up for all of EM. Um, as a result, people were expecting that they're going to be high in issue premiums paid on bonds. So that's another thing to worry about. And then for Turkey, if you, you know, if you cut your strength of your, of your local currency by a big chunk like this, then that does make the affordability of your dollar debt considerably worse. Um, I mean, in terms of why is people aren't worrying about it so much yet in credit? I mean, there's a few reasons. Um, firstly, uh, for the banks, uh, the dollar deposits are massive. Um, they've got about $1.6 trillion of, of dollar deposits. I mean, in part because inflation has been running so high in Turkey that the citizens have been moving their money into dollars from Lira um, for the last few years. And, so the banks are holding huge dollar deposits, which kind of helps. And that that could, the, they're so big that they could, um, that it sort of eclipses the potential short-term dollar debt that the, the banks um, are exposed to. So that kind of, you know, hedges them a little bit. Regulation in Turkey is such that corporate, uh, Turkish corporates, um, uh, their foreign borrowings are, are, are quite tightly controlled um, by the government. Um, and... I mean, the citizens aren't allowed to borrow foreign currency. The corporates, um, only the corporates that are the strongest and also the ones that are natural exporters um, are actually allowed to, to borrow in dollars. So that means that there's sort of a natural hedge there already. And even if they borrowed more than, than would be their natural hedge, they're expected to be sophisticated enough that they would be able to hedge that properly um, and run that risk uh, without it being too much of an issue. Um, so non-performing loans at the banks for foreign currency debt is actually very low. I think it's still at like less than 1%, something like that. So if the the banks are safe because they've got a lot of dollar deposits and the corporates are sort of also quite well organised, what, what's the risk for Turkey from this situation? So the dollar deposit, deposits are a good thing um, and they help protect the banks. But... There's also a big risk that kind of comes along with that, which is essentially what happens if those dollar deposits are taken out. So if the locals have a sudden panic and think, I might not be able to get my hands on the money, and they start panicking about the stability of the banking sector, for whatever reason that may be, if there's a run on the banks and they try to remove those dollars and stick them, you know, under their pillow, in their mattress, you know, in the fridge, wherever it is they want to put it, um, then that that is a problem for the banks. Um, the the that dollar that dollar hedge then immediately gets removed, and then the problem there is that as well the CBRT doesn't actually have a huge amount of firepower left to deal with that or to help stabilize things. Um, if if that is the case, I mean, the, it only has you know thirty five 
Is that the central bank? Yes, yes, the central bank Republic of Turkey. Yeah. So, um, so the CBRT only has like thirty-five to forty billion dollars of FX reserves itself. So it's very small, like comparatively to um, to to the dollar deposits that the banks actually have. Um, so that's when potentially, if if something like that was to happen, that's potentially where the capital controls would be introduced, um, and there would be even more issues in Turkey. And I guess there's the uh, other problem with the inflation running that high. Um... Perhaps there's a risk of an economic downturn too, which wouldn't do Turkish corporate borrowers much good. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the thing. Like, while I mean, the, the dollar the dollar exposure is one thing, but you also have to remember that with this situation, I mean, this is hitting people in Turkey very hard. I mean, if if you are someone who spends lira, you know, your money is worth fifteen percent less this week if you're buying something that that was that is being you know sold to the country in dollars. Um, it's 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 very tough, um, and so because of that, if you as a citizen then decide to stop spending, it means that if any corporate that is essentially consumer facing um, is maybe about to go in for a fairly rough ride of it, just because the, the the country just doesn't feel like it has as much money as it used to. Um, in terms of Turkish bond issuers accessing the capital markets for funding, um, I noted in your story that. Um, one of the sources you spoke to said that on a, you know the last time Turkey had a uh, currency crisis in 2018, uh, rates on Turkish bonds were up like 16%. They're only about 3% to 4% now. Um, but Turkey, and certainly the sovereign, is quite a big presence in the bond markets and in better times would have been uh, in the market with a new issue right at the start of the year. Um, have you had uh, a sense from anyone in the markets as to how the sovereign will approach it, what borrowing the sovereign has to do and how it might approach it next year? Well, I mean, so the, Tur- so the Turkey sovereign puts out a, um, a figure um, in the last quarter of every year, um, essentially earmarking what it wants to raise in the following year. Um, this year, it said 11 billion, which is this pretty much bang on what it did this year. Um, and then the question is, is is when, I suppose, the first one of those deals gets done, because I think that's another important bit for the rest of the Turkish issuers as well. And I think they need that sovereign to come in, put down a marker for, for where is a clearing level for risk so that they can then all price off it and choose, you know, decide whether they want to. Um, as you say, in, in better times, you know, when Turkey is a darling of the markets, it pretty much races out the gates in January and you expect to see it more or less within the first week or two um, of the markets reopening in, in the new year. Um, next year, it's it's tough to tell, to be honest. I mean, some people say that they, they will be looking straight off the bat, um, but it's going to, I suppose, depend on what further turmoil may be to come from Turkey um, as to whether they're going to be able to do something super quickly or whether it, it will it will mean them waiting um, a month, maybe even two months before before they go ahead and print. Jessica, Erdogan, Erdogan has got a track record of changing his mind sometimes, hasn't he? Do you think that could happen this time? And also what you know, if you know, are these measures he, he does actually popular? Um, I would say, um, at the moment, they're not popular. Um, <laughs> at the moment, 
my understanding is is that uh, he is he is losing popularity fast as people feel like their money is being pulled down the drain. Um, I mean, that brings us potentially to a whole separate discussion about whether he will be re-elected in 2023, whether um, that election will be a fair election. But I think right now, I think it's safe to say that with the devaluation of the currency, um, it's he's not looking so pretty um, to his population. So yes, you're right, John. In in 2018, um, when there was the last sort of currency crisis in Turkey, um, you're right, he did change tack and he essentially got pressured by the markets in, in, into doing so because the, 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 the country got pushed around um, too much, the bond yields, the currency, etc. Um, this time around, um, I mean, there is in theory a possibility that he will change his tack and the feeling I think around the market is that if things get very, very, very bad, um, if the yields do start getting hit awfully if there is you know if there are runs on banks if the stability of the banking sector starts to collapse then yes he's got people around him in the AK party in the government that are going to to hopefully have his ear um and he will perhaps change what he's doing um at the moment though there's no real sign of that yet I mean he made this move via the central bank um I think on late Thursday last week um, and, uh, the currency fell immediately, I think something like 6%. Um, by the time we got in this week, it was clearly, there was no recovery from that. Um, and he went ahead and, and gave, um, a speech talking about how he was declaring an economic war of independence. Um, a, essentially a, a one man flight against inflation using the great tool of, uh, of cutting interest rates. Um, and the currency then fell, I think, another 8% um, on top of that as a result. So there's absolutely no sign of him um, of him changing tack just yet, although the hope, as you say, does, does remain that history might repeat itself and he might see the error of his ways um, at some point um, and either stabilise or, or start raising. And again, speaking of independence, uh, central bank governors in Turkey that uh, put up interest rates don't tend to last that long in the job, do they? Well, exactly. Yes, there have been, I think, four in the last three years. Um, and the worry is, uh, like, they've, the central banks indicated that they're, they're going to be, I think, stable in December. Um, the question is, what happens in January? Like, the, the feeling at the moment is that if whoever is running the central bank uh, doesn't feel the need to put up rates further, that's going to provoke the ire of Erdogan. And uh, that might be another off with his head moment, um, which the markets aren't going to like either, um, if that happens. Thank you, Jessica. Uh, anyone who wants to read more about that story, uh, please visit globalcapital.com. And, um, and we look forward to more from you on the topic in the weeks to come. Thanks, Ralph. So we're now turning to another emerging market, very different, and that's El Salvador, um, where some very bizarre things are happening in the capital markets, but of a completely different kind. Um, Ollie, what, what's been happening in, in El Salvador? Well, John, last week was Bitcoin week in El Salvador, and uh, it came to its conclusion last Saturday with a rather um, bombastic presentation from the president, Nayib Bukele. Uh, he revealed plans to issue one billion of dollars of what he called 
Bitcoin bonds. These bonds would be issued on Blockstream's liquid network, uh, a place for the digital trades to be settled and exchanged. And $500 million would be used for the government to buy Bitcoin. The other $500 million, uh, and if you thought that was strange, it's going to get stranger, is going to be used to build a brand new city by a volcano. And the $500 million will be put towards financing energy infrastructure that will allow the volcano to not only power the city, but to power Bitcoin mining there. Uh, this is the Bitcoin city, it's being called. Well, that sounds great. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, well, I mean, Ollie, why are people so worried about it? Well, uh, to give you some background, um, El Salvador is in quite a squeeze from a funding perspective. Um, their traditional sources of funding, the multilateral um, development banks and the bond markets, um, have not got great capacity to give them much more. So is it a country with a lot of debt problems? John, if you take a look at the credit rating, it's already triple C from Moody's, B minus from Standard and Poor's and Fitch. And in January 2023, they have a big bond maturity that the markets don't think they're going to be able to pay. Those bonds are now yielding almost 28%. And the recent news um, about the Bitcoin bond, although you might think, well, great, it's a new source of funding that should help the bonds actually uh, has been interpreted very negatively by bond markets and uh, bond prices have plummeted again to all-time lows. How, how does an investor get paid from a Bitcoin bond? Well, according to Blockstream and Mr. Bukele, uh, there'll be a coupon of 6.5% on these bonds. Um, <clears throat> and then there's also what they're calling the Bitcoin dividend, so the $500 million that El Salvador will use to buy Bitcoin will have a five-year lockup period. After five years, Buque, uh, El Salvador can sell, the, sell its Bitcoin holdings and the massive profits that Blockstream expects them to make from selling their Bitcoin can be channeled into a dividend for bondholders. If you believe Blockstream, and who am I to doubt them, uh, this is going to lead to annualized yields of 147% for holders of the Blockstream bond. Um, that's assuming, of course, and uh, again, who am I to doubt them, that Bitcoin reaches $1 million in the next 10 years. What's the Bitcoin worth now? It's uh, about sort of... 56000 I think. Okay, so it's got last. a way to go. It's got a way to go. It's got a way to go. So, Ollie, would would investors get all the profit from the Bitcoin? Well, I don't have the exact term sheets, John. In fact, um, not many people do. It, it's these uh, projections are being based off a mobile phone video of Bukele's presentation, fireworks and all, um, with a PowerPoint in the background. And people are zooming in on their screenshots to try and understand what El Salvador is proposing. But talking to analysts who've looked at the uh, projections that Blockstream is making, it doesn't seem like that. In fact, the, the funny thing about this, um, this proposed instrument is if you expect El Salvador to be able to repay its debt, you can buy El Salvador bonds already and get far more lucrative yields than 6.5% coupon. And if you believe Bitcoin is going to hit a million dollars, well, you can just buy Bitcoin and you get a far more um, lucrative return. And no El Salvador credit risk to boot. Yeah, so it doesn't really make a lot of sense. 
it it makes absolutely no sense to buy this bond um, from an investment perspective. You can uh, you can hedge yourself buying a portion of El Salvador debt and a portion of uh, Bitcoin, and in whichever in, in every scenario, you're better off than if you buy the Bitcoin bond. But really, I think people. This is why emerging markets bonds investors are going to have absolutely no interest whatsoever in the instrument. Uh, but you know, not as we've seen this year. Um, people making irrational investment decisions is nothing new. And most likely the people who are going to buy into this instrument are the people who think that Bukele is some kind of revolutionary who is showing us a path to the future. And you want to be part of his um, digital revolution and uh, you know his uh, sticking two fingers up to the financial establishment, basically. So for mainstream investors, it really looks just like El Salvador adding more debt to to the burden it already has and with a potentially very risky project that it's spending the money on of building this new city. Yes, it's definitely a concern that they're adding more debt. And um, to look to understand this a bit better, perhaps we can look at the trajectory of um, El Salvador's bonds this year. In March, Bukele's Nuevas Ideas party won a landslide victory in Congress, this actually led to a, a huge rally in the country's bonds at first, because what what bondholders wanted to see from El Salvador was an IMF program that would not only put the country back on a sustainable fiscal path, but would lo- unlock the door to plenty of cheap multilateral financing. And they've seen in nearby Costa Rica that countries where there's lots of bickering in Congress and lots of partisan interests, getting IMF programs approved was a huge challenge. So it felt like Bukele had a clean slate. He could do whatever he liked. He would push through an IMF program and uh, all's well that ends well. Unfortunately, as much as Bukele says he wants an IMF program, his actions basically since May have suggested he wants anything but. As soon as he, the new parliament was sworn in in May, he sacked the attorney, the attorney general and five members of the constitutional court. That led to a major sell-off. Then in uh, June or July came his announcement that El Salvador would adopt Bitcoin as a legal tender. This is something that the IMF has disapproved in quite clear terms in blog blog posts. They just released um, an Article 4 report in El Salvador highlighting the risks of implementing Bitcoin as legal tender. And really what this latest initiative uh, suggests is that um, El Salvador is taking an, a, a path a long way away from the financial system. An IMF deal really looks dead in the water. And without that IMF deal, it's very hard to see how El Salvador's debt is manageable. Do you think the IMF will not give El Salvador a deal unless it stops dabbling in Bitcoin and making it legal tender? It's, it's hard to say that. I think people um, think that probably the Bitcoin law on its own is, some, is not an insurmountable obstacle. But the fact that Bukele does not really seem to take the IMF's concerns seriously uh, probably is. And um, you don't have to be a, a, skeptic, a skeptic on cryptocurrency to realize that this is not a particularly well thought out policy. 
designed to give El Salvador greater financial and economic independence. Just look at the presentation. It's, it's Bukele being beamed down from some kind of spaceship onto a stage in his trademark dark glasses and backwards baseball cap, fireworks going off everywhere, ACDC in the background. This really is cementing, cultivating the Bukele personality cult. He took, he's taking this so seriously that the IMF uh, technical mission that was just in El Salvador published their findings on Monday, and they admitted that this idea didn't even come up in conversations. The first they heard of it was like everyone else, when they uh, have their eyes glued to Bukele's Twitter feed, which, by the way, is um, unlimited entertainment. So really, it, it's hard to see that El Salvador is te- or Bukele himself is taking this seriously, is taking the risk seriously. And there are risks to financial stability, holding if, if, if El Salvador decides to hold lots of Bitcoin. Obviously, these outlandish uh, projects will need financing that it's not clear where that comes from and uh and also there's all sorts of money laundering and compliance risks from allowing from turning bitcoin into a into a uh into legal tender so really the risks if you're a if you're a a, a believer in the traditional financial uh mechanics of the world are, are huge Obviously, if you think that um, that system is is handcuffing El Salvador and, and meaning it it doesn't have financial independence, that you think uh, Bukele is a visionary. And if you look at the reactions of the crowd um, at the presentation, there are clearly a lot a lot of uh, crypto dudes, for want of a better word, who do think he's a visionary. Maybe that's enough for him to raise one billion dollars through uh, through this rather harebrained scheme. So, Ollie, what's the timeline for this Bitcoin bond? What comes next? Well, Bukele prides himself on being able to pluck ideas out the air, out the air and implement them in li- at lightning speed, and he says this bond will be issued in sixty days. So, keep an eye on that, and let's see how many people are willing to back his vision, really. Um, for, for the bondholders, uh, the traditional bondholders, it's a question of keeping an eye on the January 2023s. That's the, that's the time where default risk is likely to bite. Unless they find new sources of funding, default looks inevitable right now. So uh, really in the next few months, we should have a better idea of, of El Salvador's path. Well, perhaps I've been listening to too many American financial podcasts, but uh, just to be clear, Ollie's views on El Salvador uh, and its Bitcoin bond do not constitute investment advice um, or recommendations. If you want to take a punt on El Salvador's Bitcoin bond, you are more than welcome. So thank you to Francesca, Ollie and John for joining me for this week's podcast and to Gerald Hayes, our editor, for putting it all together. Do get in touch. Email us at podcast at globalcapital.com. We'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free every Friday. And uh, you just need to search for us in any of your, uh, your favorite podcast platforms and you'll find us there. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next week. And goodbye. Goodbye.